This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. What happens to Westminster Seminary, California students after they graduate? Most of them go on to become pastors in confessional, Presbyterian, and Reformed congregations. Most of them spend the rest of their lives in faithful service to Christ, preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, making hospital calls, making mission trips, planting new congregations, doing home visitations, and attending meetings of session, presbytery, and synod. The Reverend Mr. Eric Hausler is a 1989 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and for the last 25 years, he's been doing exactly what he prepared to do here at Westminster, serving congregations in the PCA and the OPC. He's presently pastor of Naples Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Naples, Florida, naplesopc.com. He's also actively involved in a mission to Haiti. He has served on the Board of Trustees for the seminary, and he's here this week to give the annual Dendalk Lectures on Pastoral Ministry on equipping the saints with forgiveness and grace and with gospel urgency and resurrection hope. These talks are online at wscal.edu. Hi, Eric, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here. Well, we are glad you're here, and I know the students are excited to have you here and to benefit from your experience. Uh, And as we get started here, tell us a little bit about your experience as a student here and maybe some of the things that might stand out in your memory as we go back low those many years, particularly those things that have stuck with you over the last 25 years. Well, I had wonderful years here at Westminster Seminary, California, and actually I didn't want to leave, so I stayed an extra year. I spread my three-year Master of Divinity program into four years and started working part-time those last two years to support my new wife as I just got married and had tremendous years of study here. I made friendships that I still have, and I feel like the Lord used the seminary to establish in my life a solid foundation for the rest of my life in ministry. I used to say when I was here that Westminster Seminary is a place where you know that the professors love the Lord, they love God's Word, and they love the students. And that was a climate that was just rich for spiritual growth and edification as a student, and I believe that same climate is here today. You and I were here, we overlapped a little bit, so we are of similar antiquity. And I know throughout my ministry in various ways, I've often remembered things that were said in class. I can remember professors standing up and saying things. And I've often thought of those. There are slogans, particularly, that I learned from Dr. Bergsom about preaching. You know, a gentleman that he learned from his teachers, uh, one of whom was R.B. Kuyper, who used to say, you know, men, in every text, there are three points. The text, the text, the text, and men, you know, preach the text, the whole text, and and nothing but the text, so help you God. And those things and, and the kinds of stories that were told beyond just the formal instruction, which was so important stuck with me and helped form an attitude. The medievals would call it a a disposition, a habitus towards ministry. How have you seen your education work out over the last 25 years? I guess in two ways. One is the emphasis, as you said, on preaching the text, but on preaching Christ from the text and preaching the gospel with every sermon that we always are leading people to Christ. Uh, I can remember in Meredith Klein's class, young Meredith's class, Hebrew class, of always digging into the Hebrew text to how would you take this and preach Christ from this text? And that has been a helpful reminder that my responsibility 
as a servant of the word every time is to preach Christ. And if I'm not preaching Christ, then I'm preaching something else. And it's something else that won't bring life from the dead. And the other thing I remember in Dr. Godfrey's, I don't know if it was at a history class, or I did have a homiletics class from him at one point. And I remember him saying, preach for faith, that uh, whether they're new Christians, people who are not yet believers, or those who have been believers for some time, that our goal is to build them up and strengthen them in the faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so our goal in every message is to reach young and old alike, new believer, unbeliever, established believer with the word of God that they might be built up in the faith. In 2013, you were called by the Home Missions Committee of the Presbytery of the South, OPC, to plant a church in Naples. Talk a little bit about the difference between planting a church in Ada, Michigan and planting a church in Naples, Florida. Well, the, the church in Michigan actually was a church plant that um, I was called from Naples to go and do back in 1998. When I went to Ada, Michigan, there was already a core group that had formed there, and they were under the oversight of another OPC congregation in town, Harvest Presbyterian Church on the other side of Grand Rapids. And so that core group called me to come, and it was already a group with families, uh, young people, about 40 or so people, a very solid core group. The difference in Naples is that there's only had a few contacts there, and so I'm doing much of the work of a regional home missionary would do to gather the core group together and did that over the summer from July up until November when we began worship services. The other difference in Naples is that you have a seasonal community where the population just doubles in the wintertime, and so your church attendance doubles. And it's very easy to fall into a pattern of thinking that things are going great because we have <laughs> such a crowd. Uh, before I was in, in Michigan, I had served in a PCA church in North Naples, so I know that you can't get psyched out by that seasonal crowd that comes from you know, November, December, January, February, and then they start leaving in March and Easter time. You're not going to get too many snowbirds in Ada, Michigan. Right. So your population is fairly stable. There are a few snowbirds that leave Ada, Michigan, and will go down to Arizona or to Florida for the winter. But it stays pretty moderate. Though in the summertime in Ada, you do have some folks that will go to a cottage or family cottage, you know, up in the northern part of the state. But certainly not the flux like you have in Naples. So that's a challenge, and we're praying and seeking these year-round families to reach with the gospel and uh, those who might not be regularly attending a church somewhere looking for a fresh start in their spiritual life or those who have just moved to town and are looking for a church that preaches the gospel. How many people in the Naples metro area? There's a couple hundred thousand people in the Naples metro area and we're down in the south part of town. We're about 20 to 25 minutes away from a PCA church in North Naples and about 25 minutes to half an hour from a PCA church on Marco Island. So the part of town that we're in is one where there's a gap, but it's a fast-growing area. There's three housing developments that have over 1,200 residences going in in each one. So there's a, a large increase coming on the horizon. It's also a very multicultural part of town with uh, neighborhoods of Hispanics and Haitians and then some upscale neighborhoods and gated communities. So it's, it's quite a mix, and I find that very exciting. And your experience in Haiti would seem to position you well to be able to minister to that community, and you've got previous experience. Naples as well. Right. There's uh, everywhere I go in the East Naples, South Naples area, I see Haitian people. I talk to Haitian people. I, I find them in the grocery store and at Home Depot and any of Office Max. And to me, that's uh, just an added treat. It's a bonus. And to have opportunities to minister to and, and to reach out to Haitians. We have some of them coming to our church already. So. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the questions that the listener may be asking is, Pastor, how did you know that God was calling you from Ada back to Naples? How does an experienced, seasoned, mature pastor go about making that very difficult decision to leave one call and to take another? Because, after all, God called you to Ada. When did he uncall you? How did you think about that? As I've always said to people, there's the outward call and the inward call, and both of them need to be present to make any kind of a move. There's the outward call that comes from the church, where the church, God's people say, we believe you're the one that God would have come now. And I wrestled with that, of course, going to Ada in the first place. They invited me to come to candidate there, and I had no desire to leave Naples at that point. That was back in 1998. And in fact, I said to my wife when I went up to candidate, don't worry, honey, we're not moving to Michigan. I'm just going to go up for the experience. (laughs) Famous last words. (laughs) And uh, I remember, in fact, one of my friends asked me to pray about coming there, and I foolishly said, thinking in my heart, I don't need to pray about that. There's no way I would move my Florida wife to Michigan. So um, it's a combination of the the inner sense of call that the Spirit of God lays upon the heart combined with the outer sense of or the outer calling, the call by God's people where they say, we believe God is the one calling you here. And when that happened in Michigan the first time, they actually extended a call to me and I declined the call because I didn't have that sense of inner calling. My mother was dying of cancer and just didn't see it as the right time and wisdom to leave my present call in Naples. And then they came back about a month later and said, we really think you're the one to come. And so we've had another congregational meeting, this core group, and they voted unanimously for me to come and said they would wait until I was ready. So I had to wrestle through that and sought wisdom from godly counselors and actually sought wisdom from my parents as well because it meant leaving their winter home and uh, not being around. And at the end of the day, decided this was of the Lord. So about uh, six years ago, the regional home missionary from the Presbytery of the South started uh, encouraging me to consider coming back to Florida to plant a church. So he would be like God's servant of the church, planting that idea in my mind. And for a number of years in a row, I just felt like it wasn't the right time. We had sons, one after another, graduating from high school. The church was at a point where we were moving from a rented or a converted facility that we had purchased to a rental that was bigger to a building project. And I thought it was the better part of wisdom not to be leaving the church in the middle of a building project or moving. And and I really sensed this was the Lord's call still upon my life. And uh, after we moved into a new facility and a year had gone by and we had strong elders and strong deacons and a very encouraging financial situation in the church, I thought I could pass the church on to another pastor and that this would be the time to respond to that call or that invitation to consider planting a church back in South Florida. And so I wrestled through that process with my wife in prayer and seeking counsel. And eventually the Presbytery of the South issued a call for me to come. And my wife and I spent some time in Naples, driving around the area, praying that the Lord would confirm this in our heart, that we would sense that leading of the Spirit, the calling, the inner call as well, and came to the conclusion it was of the Lord and His timing. And I had a desire, a heartfelt desire to plant another church that God had given me gifts uh, to do so. Our youngest graduated high school, so time-wise, it seemed appropriate. And looking at my life, as God's Word says, teach me to number my days. I might present before you a heart of wisdom. 
the last 15 years have flown by, and I look at the next 15 years, I'll be in my late 60s at the end of that time. And if I'm going to plant another church, I need to do it now before I run out of steam. And it uh, just seemed like all the doors were open to go forward and to accept the call and go down by faith, believing this was of the Lord. So there are a lot of judgments to be made simultaneously. And I'm glad you explained because people don't understand because they've perhaps never been through it. What is involved in considering a pastoral call? So perhaps as the listener is hearing this, it might be the first time they've ever heard a detailed account of how a man thinks through this process. So prayer is involved, but also consultation, honest evaluation, practical considerations, all kinds of things go into making the decision. It isn't like you went out into the desert and fasted. Not that that would necessarily be a bad thing, but it isn't that you went into the desert, you went into a cave and fasted and got a vision from the Lord, and and then suddenly it was over and you knew exactly what to do. That's right. There's uh, some very practical ways. I think you need to look at your life, you look at your gifts, you look at your family, you look at your gifts and abilities, and are they being used in the best possible way to serve the Lord? And could someone else do what I'm doing here and do it better? And I think that's one of the conclusions I came to in Ada. By the time we left, we had 350, 400 people in worship. Um, We had 10 or 12 elders, 10 or 12 deacons. And really, I felt like the church was at a stage where someone who could come in with better administrative gifts to continue in the pastoral role, to do that better than I could do it, and continue to move that church forward, it was time for someone else to come and do that. There are unavoidably entrepreneurial elements to planning a congregation. There just are. How do you avoid the temptation of worrying too much about buildings, bodies, and budgets? And you have to think about those things because, for one thing, there aren't, at the beginning stages, 350 people to help you with all those things. And yet, if you obsess about them, you're really not doing your job, right? So how how do you balance those things? Well, you... uh... You do your work, and you pray, and you leave it in the Lord's hands. And thankfully, through the OPC, they do significantly fund church planning work, so you're not totally reliant on support and gifts to see a church plant begin. I remember the the few days before we had our first worship service. We moved there in the first part of July, and our first worship services were in November. And I remember uh, several nights that first night, or that first week, right before our first service, waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to go back to sleep, <laughs> wondering, oh, Lord, bring people. Is anybody going to come? I mean, I, I'd made all kinds of contacts, but nobody had signed on the bottom line, or few, <laughs> only a few had that they would be a part of this. So. You weren't collecting RSVPs. No. And so how was the first service? Well, there were a few glitches before we got there in that the hotel where we had rented signed a contract. We can use their conference room. They let me know like two weeks in advance after I'd already put publicity all over town that the conference room wasn't going to be available because they were renovating the hotel and uh, it would have to be a week or two later. And I said, then we've got to come up with another option because this had already been delayed a week as it is and I had lost $75 in advertising money. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God 
God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So we committed that to the Lord in prayer, and I went in to meet with them, and they said, well, how about if you used our poolside deck? Could you meet there your first two Sundays? And in the lobby at night in the back, it it all worked out, and we had uh, nearly 40 people our first two Sundays and 25 or 30 in the evenings. So we stepped out in faith and believed that God would provide, and uh, he showed himself faithful. There are a lot of different philosophies on church planting how it should be done, and how it should be measured. And one of the variables that doesn't often come up in the church planting literature or church growth literature that I have read in the past is the variable of being confessional and doing those things. And so you know, sometimes people talk about a two-year plan and hitting certain marks within two years, and yet one doesn't see those kinds of metrics necessarily in the New Testament. So I guess it's a multi-part question. How do you balance being faithful to the Word of God as we understand it and confess it, and yet also measure what you're doing and making decisions about whether to continue or or not? Well, I don't know that we're at the stage yet where I can evaluate, is this successful? I, I feel like I'm spending so much of my time planting the Word of God, planting seeds, witnessing to people. I, you know, so much of my time is preparing to preach and to minister to the people that God has brought here and to get the Word out that the Word of God is being proclaimed in this place. I'm also very active in our county jail. I said to someone the other day, yeah, I've got a lot of guys that I would love to see as future elders and deacons. The only problem is they're behind bars right now. And but you're planting seeds, right? Yeah. I mean, Lord willing, some of those fellows won't. Oh, yeah. Jail is a short-term facility. And many of them will be out within the year. And I've seen some wonderful lives changed that have come to faith in Christ. And The listener might be a little surprised to hear you say that you're lo- you're thinking about future officers who are currently in the cooler. It's a, probably an unconventional approach, <laughs> but I've seen God's blessing. And when I, I started helping out there, I, I actually was a, a volunteer assistant chaplain there back in the 90s. And so it was very natural for me to go back to the Collier County Jail, and it's right in our target zone of, of East Nation. Before, I used to drive half an hour to the south to go there. So I'm, it's right in our part of town, and I have a little office right nearby. And I've been able to bring in a lot of Reformed literature. They before had just all kinds of, of literature that's, I don't know, I don't want to disparage anybody, but just it was not very good material. And I've had some really excited guys about Reformed theology and growing in the faith. In fact, one of the guys that I've been discipling there, who will probably be getting out this summer, was holding on to... John Fesco's book on holiness, this little one, and just pointing to it with tapping it with his finger and said, this is a great book. And he's one who two weeks ago, I had given him a, a little card with the Heidelberg Catechism question number one on it and the answer, and then the, the scripture proofs for it. And after a week of meditating on that and memorizing that, he goes, can I get a copy of that, that, that catechism? <laughs> What's it called? The Heidelberg Catechism? And, um, yeah, I think we can do that for yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I think I've got an actual, in fact, I've got a study, G.I. Williamson's study book of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism. So I guess one of the things I I tell people is when they ask me how things are going, my typical response is we're plodding along. You know, in American culture, we want 
big results and quick results. And my philosophy of church planting is the first year or so, you just spreading your bread upon the waters. And by faith, you wait to see the return. You plant the seed, you plant the seed, you plant the seed. And you're building relationships with people. And, you know, I, I, I interact with people I know in the stores. Um, one particular manager who's just started pouring his heart out to me, he's a recovering alcoholic. And I feel like that's a, a relationship that, you know, I've been building on for the last six months, and he's ripe for the gospel. And then these guys in the jail, I can see the work of the Spirit in their lives. The Spirit of Christ is forming Christ in them. And I look forward to seeing a day when they might be able to come to be out and attend our church. So your focus is really on the process and on the planting. As you said earlier, the planting the Word of God. And you're really not focused then on results or doing things in particular to achieve a certain short-term outcome. Well, we are, I mean, in in one sense, we are putting out the Word through any means possible. We advertise in the paper now and then. And I did, actually, I did a Facebook boost a couple Sundays ago where you pay to have your church Facebook page promoted into people's Facebook pages that I don't know. And the next Sunday, a couple came who saw it. And I I was like, whoa, that's great. So you're using and, new media as well. That's right. And, and they said that they've been looking for a church like ours and were excited to find us and came back. And the husband was out of town the second week, Easter. He's out of the country and his wife came and she came over for dinner. And I see that as, you know, we use all means possible to put the word out and to let people know that we're here. We sent out flyers. Someone gave us a whole envelope of postage stamps that a family member had died and they gave us all their stamps. So I used those to send out invitations. I bought some mailing lists of new move-ins to the zip codes surrounding where we meet and sent out an invitation card and praying for the Lord to use that as well, to just keep putting the word out. And I found in Ada, when we were up in Michigan, that over the years, you would hear people say, I've been watching your little group, and we're going to come visit. And sometimes, you know, people would eventually come, and then they would stay. So just because you don't see results, you know, right away, that doesn't mean that getting the word out is having no effect. Sometimes it takes a little while for people, especially when they see the word orthodox, that if they've never heard of an orthodox Presbyterian church before, that's a new pill to swallow. And it takes a little while for them to figure out what that means and what we're about. Another, perhaps, of the unconventional groups that you're seeking to reach are mature folks in your community. And as part of an article updating folks on your work in Naples, you issued an invitation to families and mature believers to join you in your work. Talk about what you were thinking behind that. I was thinking of a Priscilla and Aquila type situation where if they're looking for something else to do in their life, they have come to a point um, whether they live in Bemidji, Minnesota, or and they're looking for someplace warm, or on the other side of the world even, that they are looking for something where they can be useful. Uh, I would like to use them. In fact, we did have a couple visit two Sundays ago, some people that we had known from 20 years ago, and they went back to their pastor and said, we would like, I didn't, I didn't say anything to them, but they said, we would like to talk to our, they called me a couple days later, that they've talked to their pastor and asked if he would send them as missionaries to help us uh, for a year. And so they're in the next county north, but they live down in Naples. They they attend church much farther to the north. So they're going to have a send-off for them on a Sunday morning, the first Sunday in May, and they'll be helping. She's a Bible teacher, and he's been an elder. And that's just a, a wonderful addition to a small work to have 
people come and say, we're going to roll up our sleeves and join you. So that was my appeal when I put that out in uh, New Horizons, was that perhaps the Lord might lay on someone's heart like a Priscilla and Aquila, um, like Paul or Barnabas went to get Paul to have him come help in Antioch, that the Lord would bring a gifted teacher or a couple to come walk alongside us and say, tell us what we can do. We want to help. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the challenges of planning a church is finding people who are mature, not only in years, but spiritually, theologically, practically, because you're building everything from scratch. And so this is a great gift to have people who've been in the church, understand how it works, and understand what needs to be done and have experience and gifts that you're able to use. That's a really interesting strategy. Did you just draw that directly from Scripture, or did somebody alert you to this idea? Well, actually, I mean, I see that in God's Word from Barnabas going and getting Paul and bringing him back to come help him teach. But also someone had mentioned to me, it actually didn't work out, but someone had mentioned to me that maybe their parents might be interested in joining it, that they were retiring, they were going to move, but they didn't know where from out here in the southwest part of the United States, and maybe you could write them and invite them to come join you. And I thought, what a great idea. So it ended up that they had decided to stay where they are for a little while, but that was another... The seed got planted. Right. The seed, the idea got planted and thinking, there might be some people out there who are saying, I'd like to retire, and I don't like where I'm living right now, and I'd like to be useful. Sometimes people's target a particular demographic the way that advertisers do and that you know the prime demographic for television is 25 to 54 and advertisers and other marketers will sometimes say well we're not interested in particularly people post 54 in other words after age 54 but we're not talking here about a product we're not talking here about a television network we're talking about the church which is a different sort of a thing. It's a spiritual institution that we're talking about that is doing work, laying foundations, and introducing people to truths and realities that far transcend you know, mere commercial concerns. Yeah, and so you don't have necessarily the same kind of standards. And there's so many of those things that you have to leave that to the Lord and not be so concerned about the demographic. It's God's going to bring who he desires. So you leave that in the Lord's hands and you wait to see what the Lord does. There don't seem to be a lot of demographically targeted congregations in the New Testament. If you look at the way the congregations, some, at least what we are able to determine from Acts and from mentions in the epistles, there isn't a lot of evidence of that kind of targeting, demographic targeting in the New Testament. Well, Paul would start out in the synagogues. Yeah. And then, of course, the God-fearing Greeks that would be... Um, but he's not saying, you know, I'm, I'm mostly interested in 25 to 54 no. Jews. And, right... I mean, yeah, certainly he's reaching certain, he's aiming at groups. And I guess you could call that a kind of demographic targeting, but it's not sort of narrow casting or niche marketing. He's preaching the gospel to people and saying, y'all come, right? right? It's a general invitation to a whole group of people. And in the providence of God and in the decree of God, he turns and goes to a whole other group and says, all you Gentiles, parents, grandparents, children, you're all part of this. You all come. You're all invited. And finally, you're also involved not only in Naples, not only have you planted a church in Ada, Michigan, but you've been involved in overseas missions, particularly in Haiti. Talk a little bit about how you got involved with this work, why you're doing it, and particularly since you've been at the same time involved in planting a congregation in Ada and now in, in Naples. How are you able to manage all this and why would you take this on? Well, I don't know that I'm managing it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a bad assumption. Yeah. Back in college, I was uh, preparing 
at, I was at the University of Kansas. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. That's right. And I was in the International Studies or Political Science Department and wanted to take another language. I had already learned French and lived in France and was in the upper level French classes. And uh, so I decided I was going to take Chinese because I had an aunt that had been a missionary in China, kind of a revered figure in our, our family. And I always loved pretending I could speak Chinese. So I thought it would be fun when I was a kid. So I thought I would like to learn Chinese. And so I signed up for Chinese. But before the class started, I met a professor in the hallway the second year, my first semester of my sophomore year. And he asked me what I was taking in school that year. And I told him Chinese. And he said, why? And I said, because I want to learn another language. And he said, well, then you should take my Haitian Creole class. Because you've had French, you'll pick it up quickly because Creole is based in French. So I went to the registrar's office and I dropped Chinese and I picked up the Haitian Creole class. And halfway through the semester, he passed out a flyer about studying in Haiti on a study abroad program. And so I just had a sense that this was something I needed to do. The doors opened and my parents were very supportive. And the next semester, I found myself living in Haiti with a Haitian family in Port-au-Prince. That was uh, spring of 1981. And then we divided up and went to various parts of the country in pairs and worked in a mission for two months. And I taught school in a little village off the coast of Haiti on an offshore island, and that changed my life. And that's where I first sensed the call to ministry. There was a pastor on sabbatical there in that little village who would take walks with me at night along the seashore, on the moonlight, just just very contemplative, wonderfully soul-searching times. And uh, as an older man, old enough to be my father, and uh, he said, you know, a country like Haiti is never going to change through treaties and financial aid. What Haiti needs is the gospel. Well, that rocked my world. I was a believer, but I didn't see my calling as a pastor or missionary at that point. So I went back and wrestled with that for a couple years, and then decided to go in the ministry, came to Westminster Seminary, and I've been going to Haiti as often as I can, sometimes uh, two times a year ever since. And my desire is to be useful, that the Lord would use my gifts and abilities. I can preach and teach in Haitian Creole and in French, and uh, both those languages are used there. And because of my own experience there and how the Lord used that to refine me and shape me and sanctify me, I've always been committed to taking people there. So I've been taking groups there over the last 25, almost 30 years more than 30 years. And I know that God has used that for, for great things. One of the marvelous things in God's providence is that one of the villages where the OPC has some mission work now is the same village that I stayed in as a student in that little offshore island called, or in that village on Lagonave Island off the coast of Haiti. And it's right where uh, everything started for me. So I go down four times a year from a Monday to a Saturday to help and teach in the churches there so that I'm back by Sunday to preach in our church back in, in Naples. What's the single biggest advance you've seen of Reformed Christianity in Haiti over the last 30 years? I guess the desire for among church leaders to be educated and to be connected, that connectional, you know, Reformed ecclesiology uh, they see the benefit of, where so much of Haitian ecclesiology is my own little kingdom, my own little world of the pastor and his flock but they recognize the benefit of the, the broader church. And Reformed theology has, I've found, really speaks to the heart of a third world Christian because it's emphasis on the sovereignty of God, that God does all things well and that my life is in his hands and no matter what comes, he will take care of me. I mean, just as it does for North American Christians, but then we rely on our gadgets and all our, you know, all our resources. Um, but the Haitian knows if the crops fail, my family's in big trouble. And so their dependence on 
the Lord in a very real way from season to season is based, they have to base it on the promises of the Lord and the sovereignty of God. One terrible storm can come and That's right. destroy everything. Right. Or an earthquake. And there isn't a FEMA that's going to come and make it all better. You're starting from scratch in a way that it's hard for us in the first world, in, in North America, even to comprehend. Yeah, there are a lot of challenges, of course, in a third world. You don't want to make them dependent upon you, and we want to make sure that our helping doesn't hurt. There's that wonderful book out called When Helping Hurts that's been very helpful to me. Uh, we want to make sure that we're not causing them uh, to be financially dependent upon North Americans. And the thing that you have to offer that is free is grace. It's Christ. It's forgiveness right. of sins. How are people responding as you're preaching? Are they surprised to see you, who are not Haitian, standing up and preaching in Haitian Creole and, and French? Yeah, I think they're surprised, but they're also encouraged because Haitians have typically seen themselves as low on the the totem pole, you might say, and they just feel very blessed and encouraged that someone would want to learn their language and come and encourage them with the Word of God. That's a, that's a real blessing to them, and I'm privileged to be able to do that. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.